Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 179 being recorded on Monday, June 17th. 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Listeners, in this episode, we have a real special treat for you. They're all special treats, but this is a special, special treat. Uh, I'll explain with a short story. For a while, I ran, had the dubious honor of running a full-day Amazon seminar at Internet Retailer. Uh, their seminar, their conference is called IRC, uh, but I'll call it Internet Retailer. Uh, and a few years ago, uh, we we're always looking for folks to speak at this. And uh, fortunately, at Channel Advisor, we have this ability to see what our customers are doing. So we had this customer called WellPet in this very competitive pet category, and they were just absolutely destroying the competition on Amazon. So we dug into what was going on there and found uh, that the architect of that strategy and success was called Chris Perry. So we scheduled a call to talk to him and talk about speaking at Internet Retailer, and we're blown away by um, his ideas and thoughts about direct-to-consumer and and, how to succeed on Amazon, etc., um, he, uh, he gave a talk there and that was a smash hit. Uh, and then I like to think maybe this had a little something to do with it, but then he was pretty rapidly thereafter recruited by Kellogg's. Uh, those are those, that is not the business school, but the serial Lego, my ego folks, uh, and did a great stint there. And now he is with edge by essential where he, his role includes evangelizing direct consumer strategies and helping brands really kind of execute on those strategies. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Hey, Chris, we're thrilled to have you. And, you know, as usual, I like to to correct Scott's introduction. I do feel like there are a bunch of people that work at Kellogg that got their MBA from the Kellogg School. I, I, I'm sure there's a Kellogg Squared group um, that, that has uh, doubled up there. I, I was not one of them, but I was excited to be at the one that pretty much took up about 50% of my pantry. So The more delicious um, one. Yes, exactly. You do like gain it. the you do gain the freshman fifteen when you start working there. So, yeah, yeah, uh, we'll have to explore on that because I hear the culture may have shifted a little bit. That the free snacks might not be flowing as much as they once did. But I, hope I, I think good. they're trying. I think they were trying to help us with our waistlines, but they still had the Kellogg's Cafe that had like kind of endless cereal, and it was just an easy for me. It was always easy because I don't normally eat a ton of breakfast. So when I got to the office, it was such a such a such a treat, but um, I could see if you were there all day long um, in the in the main headquarters, it could get uh, a little unruly on your uh, on your uh, weight climb. So I, I get it. And Scott and I are big proponents of uh, selecting your your uh, career choices based on their snacks. So yeah, so we're exactly we're totally simpatico. Um, and uh, that's usually how we like to start the show is to actually get a little bit of a background uh, about the guest. So could you kind of uh, tell us what you did before Scott, quote unquote, discovered you? Yes. Um, and that was that was the, the, the climax of my career right there. So since then, I've fallen um, quite far down to edge by such. I'm just kidding. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm my, my, my journey's been kind of an interesting one. Um, a- after um, my MBA program, I, I was I had the awesome opportunity to join Reckett Benkeiser or RB as they're now called, um, and have been for a while. Um, the, RB is a a very unique culture. Um, honestly, one it's 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 very it's a very tough environment, but I kind of treat it like the Marines, um, they're, and they're not cutthroat against each other; they're cutthroat against competition externally. And so, I mean, that has a, you know a pressure and a pace. That not everybody can hack, but it. But for those who can, it really teaches you the ropes, and they're very lean, um, and so you get a lot of autonomy, and you get to take ownership of things that you wouldn't necessarily get to in some of the the larger, more bureaucratic uh, CPG organizations. And so I really lucked out um, with with that experience, and ultimately was I, I first started out in brand, and really thought you know coming out of my MBA with brand management as my specialization, you know, that I thought that's what I was going to do. And 
there were very clear tracks. And this was right as obviously digital was becoming a hot topic, not that it wasn't already present, but a hot topic in marketing. And so net-net, I'd been asking, how do I take a rotation in digital or something, again, that's kind of going where the puck is going for the consumer? And there weren't any things at the time. And and, and ultimately, this special project kind of came up. And I, I always kind of laugh when I think that it was called a special project, like it would end one day. And it was called e-tailing, which was obviously what e-commerce was. Um, and, and so we were, the whole company was essentially asked for volunteers and um, at, at a town hall. And when we ultimately, when I looked around at who had raised their hand, there were like three of us that had actually volunteered as tribute in true Hunger Games fashion um, for the special project. And so it was, and I, and I can tell you to this day, I can I can name the people. I won't do it on the show, but I can name the people who who pulled me aside and said that I had ruined my career and that I would never get back into brand. I would never become a senior leader because of this specialization. I'd gone too niche. This wasn't going to ever turn out. And it's so funny because most of those people have either already shifted to e-commerce or asked me at some point later, having forgotten what they said to me asked me how they could break into e-commerce. And so I, I say that humbly because obviously we don't know where the future is going to go. We just have to go with a kind of a calculated risk and instinct. But um, I never looked back. And, and honestly, Reckit was such a wonderful environment for testing and learning because they literally would point at the future and say, go get it. Here's some resources. And you you got to go fail and learn and then optimize and then succeed. And so um we, we kind of call that original group of about 20 of us that ultimately that three built into the Reckit Mafia, because that was the original group that got to really learn and hone their e-commerce skills. And literally, we've cascaded and been thrown to the, the four winds and now lead e-commerce across so many different CPGs and um, you know solution providers. So it's, it's, it's so it's so cool to see all the paths that we've taken. And really, that just led me ultimately to a new opportunity at WellPet, where obviously Scott, uh, you know, discovered me. <laughs> and then, um, and then actually I took a very short stint before Kellogg's at Planet Retail RNG, which is one of the companies that became Edge. And I kind of paused that chapter when Kellogg's came along because one of those two good to be true opportunities and then took Kellogg's. And then, um, uh, ultimately I was asked to come back, which I was an honor to come back to what became Edge by Essential. Um, which is the combination of Clavis Insight, One Click Retail, Brand View, and Planet Retail RNG into one company um, last August, and and the rest is history. And so um, I've just I've been very blessed in my career. I mean, everything happens for a reason. I'm not going to tell you it was all sunshine and rainbows, but it was it it's been an amazing learning opportunity. And I and I really do feel personally and professionally that e-commerce was an accelerator for me, um, but really got gave me the opportunity to do what I, I feel called to do as a career. And I don't want that to sound corny, but I, I really do feel like leading change was something I was, I among many of us, including you, were meant to do. And I think we're, we're doing it in all of our own unique ways, which is exciting. Awesome. Um, and uh, I, I think you, you mentioned me off the air that all those e-commerce naysayers are now the leadership team at Chewy. Is that? <laughs> I, um no, I, I will say Chewy was a very, is and was while I was working with them, a very formidable uh, retailer partner, but also competitor in the marketplace. I mean, when you think about it, they, they got ahead of Amazon in one of the leading categories before Amazon. And I, I want to say, I'm sure Jeff Bezos has a drone outside my house watching me at the moment as I say this, but um, Chewy got ahead of, of Amazon before the eye of the smile of Mordor, as I like to call it, uh, saw them. Um, and, and they are leading in pet food, which is uh, and have a really, really unique value proposition. I mean, when I drive down our street here in Boston, uh, the streets, I see the Chewy box on a lot of people's doorsteps and in their, you know, recycling. And so Chewy's really made their mark. And I, 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 I my hats are off to them. And they, they were tough partners, too. Um, they were the human version of Amazon, as I, I kind of would refer to it at WellPet, but um, which, which comes with a lot of emotion, but but uh, versus automation. But it, it was a my hat's off to them for getting to where they are today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even more impressive, I feel like they they captured more market share, not because the smile of Saruman wasn't <laughs> yeah. looking at, uh, at that category early. I feel like Amazon through Quidzy was in pet super early, and yet Chewy was still able to come in and 
and uh, do that. So definitely impressive. Um, you you referenced Edge Essential, and it's a, a, a um, essentially a a roll up of a number of um, uh, data insight tools uh, for e commerce. Um, if I if I have that right, can you tell us a little bit about what your your current role there is? Yeah, no, no, and, and so yes, we 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 rolled up four companies to essentially try to create what most practitioners, myself included, had I, I would say were suffering from in the marketplace is that there there was never a, a lack of different solution providers, but you kind of had to hack and tack everyone together on the internal side, and there weren't a lot of players who who had all the capabilities brought together. So I mean, we're not we're not the full full you know, service provider on every service and, and, and offering available. But we have a, a lot of the winning brands that brought the solutions together and also have not only just the data and insights side, but also the advisory and education side. And that's where, um, that's where my role really um, kind of flourishes. Um, I, I have, I've, as a practitioner, I've had the opportunity to practice e-commerce and help others in e-commerce um, from an, from a consulting standpoint, but also I've, I've made it a point um, to go to a ton of different events over my career to date, both for learning, but also for networking and a little, to be fair, you know, for a little bit of retail therapy um, as we were facing challenges in the space. And that kind of gave me a, a certain perspective on what could be better about the education available in the market. And so one of my major responsibilities is leading our executive education programs, which include um, our share groups, you know, our e-commerce share groups in North America and Europe, our university programs, our online learning, and as well as our, what, what I, I think is my favorite is our e-hackathons, which are e- our e-commerce summits that focus on Amazon and or Walmart or Digital Shelf or other retailers globally. So um, honestly, I, if I had to equate my job to, to an, a nerdy analogy, I'd say I, I've, I've, at this point, I've left the war front, but like Captain America, I'm going to sell war bonds back at home so that I can arm our soldiers, um, you know, in, in, on, on the front line with, with weapons that will help them win the, win the fight in an e-commerce driven world. So it's kind of, uh, it's, it's definitely a nice fit because my mom, my wife are teachers. My father was, is a CEO of a company and very inspiring leader. And I think that I was always called to kind of empower people to become better at what they do. Very cool. And you got a geek credit for working in a Captain America slash Avengers reference. So well, I, I, a, a I'm plus. trying. <laughs> I'm trying. I have a little checklist. <laughs> it's a uh, Jason Scott bingo. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we have to make uh, the, the hardest square is making fun of Jason's title. We'll, we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> so let's, let's start the conversation. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned up at the top there, uh, you've done a lot of really good thinking and execution and the, this big trend of brands going direct to consumer, uh, we, we'll call it D to C. Uh, and then sometimes inside of there you have digital native vertical brands. So we have like the old school folks like the Kellogg's, et cetera, that are, are really trying to figure it out. And then you have some of these folks that were kind of born and bred on, on the internet, um, at a super high level, 30,000 foot, where do you think we are in that, that cycle? And you can use whatever analogy you want to baseball or uh, Avengers, <laughs> or we at the end game. Yes. Yeah. No, no, you know, it's funny. I mean, D to C, you know, and again, we'll, we'll be broad here. Cause to be honest, to your point, the digitally native vertical brands or just digitally native brands kind of sit underneath one layer under D to C and arguably what even goes back a little further D to C is kind of sits under challenger brand, right? Because technically a D to C brand challenged the assumptions of how one has to go to market. Um, and that has become kind of commonplace now among D to C brands. That's not the part that they're challenging anymore, but it, it was to go to market in a way that, that wasn't the traditional brick and mortar selling into um, selling into a planogram model. And, and so, you know, I, I think challenger is a nice umbrella term for this, but, but obviously from a digital lens, I, I think in all fairness, you know, I mean, in, in e-commerce years, DTC is, is, is rather, is, is rather old. I mean, it's, it's not new anymore. It is maturing um, into a new stage or new stages. Um, I would say though, kind of though pulling back a little bit and looking at things relatively, like it, it it's still in a r- rather early adoption phase. So, you know, the, um, you know, the, the dollar shave club, Unilever acquisition, I, I, I kind of look at as, Kind of that innovator. I'm the iPhone, 
you know, I'm going to be the first one to own the iPhone and I sleep outside the store. Um, even though we're still in that early phase where not everybody has D to C or is fully, you know, mining the value of what D to C could be at a macro level. But I do think, you know, and there's been a number of articles out recently that I thought were, um, you know, quite insightful around, you know, just the fact that, you know, the barriers to entry are still low for e-commerce players, you know, to go to market digitally, but what the, the cost of, of customer acquisition, um, the share of attention and, and the means to get that with all the other people trying to capture their share of voice, um, the in, investment funding availability, and also the prerequisites and requirements to get those um, those funds from investors is becoming more and more competitive. And even when you think of like D2C brands going through like a marketplace platform like Amazon to get to market, um, Amazon isn't just letting any old seller, any old vendor launch without a number of formalities and, and policies and processes. I mean, it's not impossible by any means, but they're, they're formalizing the process. I mean, to be honest, I help pay for my, my room and board and books um, by selling books in, in my college days on Amazon and on eBay's half.com. Um, when I could be a seller at that point. Um, I, I, I would have been booted off over the years had I not stopped on my own just because I would have been one of those piddly sellers out of my garage and not maybe a formal seller. So there are some, some, some filters that are being applied that make it a little harder for a DTC brand to go to, go to market. Um, but I do think there's actually several factors that are kind of shifting that, that are keeping D2C an option um, and something that will continue to expand. So, you know, just like I, I kind of listed them out just to, just to stay linear in my thinking, but I think the nature of digital and the reality of kind of finding a minimum viable audience, which doesn't actually have to be that big to get you off the ground. Um, maybe this is pre-funding, but, you know, just to get something going enables a lot of new brands to start, you know, based on a need state or a consumer problem or a desire. Um, the marketplace model in and of itself has a lot of power in ultimately enabling um, you know, brands and, and retailers to, and sellers to go to market. I mean, and especially when you look globally, the C2C marketplace is huge in, in markets like China, where, where again, an individual has the ability to be selling directly to another individual very, very easily like the eBay model, right? So eBay seems to have waned a little bit in, in, in the US, but it's huge in other markets that that model. So um, I think traditional retailers are seeking new and differentiated and exclusive offerings to obviously keep driving demand. Again, look at a target, um, really bringing, using digitally native brand influence to drive what they carry in store. So, so going D to C has a lot of potential benefits, even though the definition might morph a little bit. Consumers are always going to be looking for, you know, new, new experiences and experience exclusivity. So brands going kind of, leveraging pop-ups and flagship stores and partnering to create experiences and solve new problems are going to capture attention. Um, I actually think this is kind of interesting. We can talk to this a little bit if, if, if you have some thoughts, because I'd love to hear. But what's interesting is do I almost see an ebb and flow happening here. So e-commerce was the way to go to market when you couldn't get into brick and mortar. But as e-commerce continues to grow and re real estate and, and, and landlords are ultimately looking to fill space and create, you know, the need for that physical real estate to be maximized. It may ultimately kind of pendulum swing the other way where brands actually can use physical retail to drive D to C in, in a sense of capturing attention and breaking through. So it'll be kind of interesting to see the physical marketplace resurge as experiences become more important. Um, but again, ev everyone's looking for growth. Everyone's looking for differentiation. Everyone's looking for a reason to capture demand. And I think that's always going to open up a door for D to C, whether it's digital or physical or both, um, to, to enter, to enter the scene. So, I mean, I, I know I've lobbed a lot at you, but I think there's, I, I think we're still early in the stage because ultimately you don't need a lot to get going as, yeah. as long as you're willing to be in it for a long time. So like, Clearly, um, sort of one of the things that has emerged is the barriers to entry for these challenger brands are are lower. Costs are lower, as you you sort of highlighted there. Um, but it does feel like we've evolved. Like like four or five years ago, you could be a challenger brand and you could slap up an e-commerce site and 
that was going to be a competitive advantage versus the incumbents that that didn't know anything about e-commerce or uh, slap some listings up on on Amazon or Alibaba, uh, and you could do customer acquisition on on uh, Facebook. And you know, again, the the incumbents were not likely to be digitally savvy. Um, it feels like the incumbents have now developed digital skills. Like you, you know, I'd, your your stint at Kellogg feels like an example of an incumbent that was hiring digital specialists to to build up those skills. What are the um, so in this sort of evolved market? If you're a new challenger brand launching today, what what are the the sort of big challenges you have to overcome to be successful? That's a, that's a great question. I, and, and to your point, I think that the the IQ and the appetite is increasing across the board, whether you're the incumbent or the the, the past challenger or the new challenger. I, I think the the challenges, you know, again, are yes, the cost of entry is low, but the but it's still to truly get scale quickly, which everyone wants those success stories, you know, those quick, you know, overnight success stories, those are harder to come by. Again, lotto tickets aren't bought every night um, that, that, that win. Um, but I think, I, I would say from a, when I think of the challenges that some of these brands have, I, I think it, it's more the investment dollars, which again, as more and more of these brands emerge and have similar or or equal propositions. It's, it's obviously, how do you stand out? How do you, how do you capture the attention of the investors to get the money that you need to kind of build scale, but you also really need to make sure you have a plan, you know, with, with a ROI cycle that ultimately gets you the return. Cause we know as a startup, you're going to probably lose money up front, but how do you, do you have a logical and, and, and reasonable path to sustainability and, and what is that? And what does that take? And, um, and again, I think I think even investors, to be honest, are, are are wise enough, and it's not just oh my gosh, this looks like it's going to be the next biggest thing since sliced bread. I've, it, it's like well, now they know some criteria to, to to gut check things again. So I think the challenges are getting the scale of resources and investment. But again, where, where these challengers often still have a significant advantage over the incumbents is agility. And I say this in the sense that, and and generally also. It, they're closer to the founder story um, where, and, and I, maybe it's not founder, but it's founders or it's the people who found the pain point and tried to solve it. It's there's all these things that haven't been solved by the incumbents. And sometimes these are like pain points. Again, the consumer didn't even know, like, again, the way Steve jobs would have said, you know, customers don't know what they want until you show it to them. Right. They don't always know that that pain point really mattered until they were given an option whether it's the way they order or the way, you know, the way it's fulfilled or the product itself or the experience it follows, you know, and I think these, these challenger brands often have designed their offering and how they're going to get it to you for the consumer. So it truly was customer consumer first, but then they have the ability to iterate that on a much quicker timeline because that is their business model. Whereas the incumbent, you know, if I'm selling one of, Kellogg's brands or Wellpets brands or Reckitt's brands or any of these great companies online, I'm generally, unless it was designed for Amazon or for D2C, I've got to go through a lot more hoops and months of, you know, change management and transition if I can sell it in, ultimately just to launch a small, what, what could be a very small change, um, you know, beyond like product titles or something I can change digitally to actually inherently change the product. It takes me, you know, anywhere from six to 12 months minimum versus a challenger that might be able to flip a change around in weeks, you know, depending on the change. So I, I think there definitely are challenges for the challenger, no pun intended, but I, I think there's, um, I think they actually still have the benefit, even if it, it's harder to get the money to scale quickly because they actually have the solution, which is the substance over, you know, over slick presentation, so to speak. So, so let, let's say you're a brand that's been around for a while and you're, you're just dipping your toe. Uh, the number one thing I always hear is channel conflict. What's, what's your, you know, having kind of, I'm sure you've overcome this one several times. What's your, what's your take on that? So, so channel conflict should be part of that initial discussion. And I actually, if I take one step back, so what, what's really interesting to me, and again, I'm by no means, I'm not the end all be all D to C expert. 
I'm just a nerd who asks a lot of questions and usually out talks people, which, which sometimes is good when you're negotiating with Amazon. Um, but the, what, what I would say is a lot of people read about, so, so again, I, I, I joke sometimes and I'm, I say this with humility, but I joke, a lot of people will say, I read something about D 2 C we should launch it right away. How do we do that? We can just slap it on our brand website. Right. And, and no, no, no. Y- yes, we could. No, we shouldn't. Um, and, and, and yes, there are some logistics and technical, you know, technical factors and some legality we need to think about. And, um, you know, to be a retailer of record, those, those are all the operational models and processes we need to follow to launch D and operate D to C. And those do matter once you decide certain questions and, and, and whether you have the right answer to these. First, why are we doing this? Um, that could be a number of reasons. I'm doing this for market research. I'm doing this to be closer to my consumer. I'm doing this for data. I'm doing this for capability development. I'm doing this because I can't get this product to market any other way. And, and, and a D2C model or a digital model makes more sense. Um, you know, I'm testing and learning. I mean, there's a number of good reasons to do D2C and maybe multiple reasons, but doing it because you read an article about it or because your boss told you so outside of just that you should do that for the sake of your job isn't the right reason, right? So uh, it's the why, you know, start with why by Simon Sinek um, is, is a very first very important first step. The second is what can we and will we launch as a value proposition that is both differentiated, superior to the status quo, and ultimately viable for our business? And viable means a lot of things, right? Relevant, strategic, actually solves a consumer problem, is sustainable, scalable. Um, we, have to, we have to answer that first because anyone can sell their product online, which then becomes a potential channel conflict to your point. Um, so what, what's happened a lot of times is the question immediately went to, um, okay, should we sell online? Yes. Okay. Won't that be a channel conflict? Well, well, yes, because we haven't come up with a value proposition that actually is differentiated from how we sell currently online or to other retailers. Right. So, and that's where the pricing gets in. If I'm just going to sell my current product online at, at the same or competitive or lower prices, I'm competing with my with my partners and likely undercutting them, likely starting a price erosion war. Um, and so, again, but if I thought through, what can I be selling that's different, right? When I think of like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm picking on brands, but but that do a good job. You know, like Keurig, I think does a really great job. They obviously sell K cups and their Keurig machines across all of retail, brick and mortar and online. But they have a community on and a very large, substantial, meaningful D2C operation that caters to this special loyalist audience. And they obviously test they have unique offerings, unique packs, unique flavors. They test new things with them. And so there's a reason to be there and that doesn't immediately conflict with all the other places. And again, they're not being competitive, undercutting price and channel with, with their core offerings, but they can do something unique and test before they launch, you know, in mass retail with new innovation. And so I think it really just goes back to, do I have a value proposition again, that's different, that's better, and that is viable. And, and I know that sounds really simple. It's not simple, but, but you can vet your ideas to ensure that they don't cause channel conflict. Fair enough. Um, the, I, I want to dive a little bit more into the psyche of those CPG execs. And the reason I'm asking you this is because I feel like you um, have posted some really funny memes, uh, CPG execs say the craziest things. And I'm assuming yes. you did not post those until after you left Kellogg's. I, well, I, I did. And, and, and to be fair, the, the nice thing is they're not all from Kellogg's. They, they were actually kind of compiled from peer feedback across the board. Um, and, and again, it, it, as a disclaimer, just because I think it's important, the people I've worked for, you know, senior and executive leadership at all the companies I've worked for, Kellogg's, WellPet, um, Reckitt, obviously Edge and Planet Retail prior to Edge, they are all extremely smart. In most cases, they're smarter than I'll ever be. Um, what is interesting is that when you represent something different and, and honestly, e-commerce could re, could be Mad Libs, and you could replace it with insert change here. Um, there will be a time where something happens in the marketplace for us where we go, "Oh, that'll never work," and that's actually the next e-commerce, right? So there's going to be a day where we have to be humble enough to know that there'll be 
a nerd named Chris Perry Jr. who will make fun of Chris Perry Sr. because he said something just as silly as some of these things. But what's funny is that we've all been fighting this good fight, these leaders of change, this community and this movement that we are. And we've all been facing kind of the same common naysayings, if you will. Um, And a lot of that is just because the model of brick and mortar and traditional brand hasn't incented in all of these organizations to pivot their thinking and behavior. And so they're not stupid people. They're, They're actually extremely wise and smart people. It's just that this this is the first time this changed. Let's be honest. Most of them have been operating within the mature, you know, the cash cow stage of brick and mortar retail. So they've mastered that. They are masters of that. It's just, this is that small disruptor that hasn't fully tipped everything on its, on its, on its head, but will. And, and so I just, just to get some of the ones again, and everyone who's been in this space can appreciate this, you know, just some of these, I, I just pulled a couple, I, I, I put 30 out. These are the 30 most common darndest things that CPG execs say. But, you know, again, one related to DDC, I kind of, uh, kind of paraphrase earlier. I just read, a, so this is a CPG exec speaking, you know, um, number 19. I just read an article about DDC and its impressive growth. We should just add that to our brand sites, right? How soon can we get that up? Or, um, you know, number three, um, hey, Chris. I think we need a strategy first. And that's just after Chris has presented the strategy to them. And just because you don't understand the strategy being presented to you doesn't mean you need a strategy. Um, you know, number 16, we want to double down in e-commerce. What can you get me for 50K? Um, that sounds like a real double down to me. You know, you'll be happy to know we added, we finally added the e-commerce team to the end of the 2019 plan agenda. You'll have about 30 minutes to present at 5.30. Oh, wow. I'm sure after nine hours of discussing the past, you'll be ready to focus on the future, right? Uh, you know, I mean, honestly, you know, the, the, the best ones ever were, and honestly, some people said, no way, you haven't been asked this. I've been asked this multiple times in my career. Um, and I know others have actually said they had it as well. Um, Chris, I can't seem to connect to Wi-Fi. Can you help me? No, no, that's IT. Um, I just thought that one was fun. And then the, the, the best one of all was our CEO would like a top to top with Jeff Bezos. Can you set this up? Um, yeah, let me just text him. Um, you know, honestly, and, and these, these are painful in the moment, funny in solidarity with our community. And they're not meant to make fun of any one person because we will all be guilty of, we've probably all said some of these things to something different we didn't, that, that we didn't understand or accept. But my my goal is not to make fun and, and, and slam these people. It, it's to raise awareness in a comical way of things that hopefully we can leapfrog, right? You know, knowledge gaps we can leapfrog so that we can accelerate the change and win. And so, and, and honestly, the, the feedback, I've never gotten this much feedback from anything I've posted, which should tell me something about the content I've shared before um, that I need to do better. Um, but but people really related to this. It really resonated with them. And so if you haven't had a chance to check it out, again, it's it's just a little ebook I put together, um, two different iterations. And I'm sure you will relate to all the things that have been said. So, yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk a little bit about Amazon. And we've kind of we've kind of nibbled around the edges. Uh, and uh, when I introduced you, I talked about how when you were at WellPet, you you were really out there kind of crushing the category. Um, what were some of the strategies that, that you use then or, or that you see now that, you know, someone's new, be it a challenger brand or a well-established brand to, to having success on Amazon? No, that's great. And, and you know, it, it's funny. In, in retrospect, it's not that revolutionary of thinking, but it, but it is, but it, but it works. And I think that's, and, and that's what's actually kind of funny too, just, just as a kind of a preface to this is um, I, I found that we always go back to fundamentals and, and the fundamentals really matter. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit to this, but like at the end of the day, I could do, I, I could drive millions and millions of dollars of ama- amazing demand generation to acquire customers to a page that's, that has no product in stock. And then I don't convert. Right. So, so at the end of the day, like the, the core operational supply chain, marketing, sales fundamentals all matter online and they matter even more than ever before because they're they're real time right once i sell my product into the shelf on a planogram i've got 6 to 12 months depending on the retailer to sit there so i mean obviously in stock still matters but i don't have to worry about my packaging changing or the upc changing necessarily 
um, you know, outside of brand teams going nuts as they always do when someone new comes in and wants to change everything. Um, but, but, but the way I approached it, and I always kind of said, if Jeff Bezos has a flywheel model, this unstoppable flywheel that he drew on the back of the napkin, arguably we at least need our own version of a flywheel that we would put on PowerPoint um, to, to just to frame how we want to think of it. And that's really kind of, and this, this came out of Reckitt. Um, this was thinking that came out of record, and, I, and I'll give credit to um, um, Sam Gagliardi, who's now the SVP of IRI um, at e-commerce at, at IRI. Um, he was our fearless leader at Reckitt um, over e-commerce and a number of other digital shopper initiatives. And he kind of coined the build, drive, earn uh, phrasing for, for our strategy. And then I kind of put this flywheel visual together to kind of bring it, bring it to life. And so together, you know, you know, together we formed Captain Planet, um, but with, with the broader team, but I, I think it was that idea of that flywheel thinking because it's an infinity loop, you know, so on the left side, you've got build, you know, or the foundation, right. You've got to build a number of things internally, capabilities, the content, the, the, the portfolio, and, 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 and you've got to, at least to get started, you have to build all of it. You got to get the right resourcing in place, the right executive sponsorship, um, the right education, um, the right measurement capabilities, um, or at least to get started. And then you ultimately go from build into the right side of the, of the infinity loop, right? As you swoop up into drive, which is all of your marketing and your demand generation, your promotion, the um, subscription programs, like subscribe and save that you would be in that again, that would create momentum. And then as that, as that infinity loop sw- swings back up, ultimately going back towards build, what you're actually creating is a is a dual cycle that pumps itself, right? So it, it, the idea is to get to kind of perpetual motion, right? Where my, I'm disproportionately earning from the building and the, and, and the driving that I'm, that I'm delivering. And, and, and I think what I love about that visual is it insinuates that you're never actually done. So if I create amazing content and get my products live and I'm driving conversion, something is going to change as I'm selling more and rising that requires me to change my content again, right? So I've never really done my content. You, you, a lot of people like to think that they, they check content and they're complete. Yes, for like a day. And then you need to be thinking about how you're going to refresh that. So, you know, build includes everything from assortment, right? To your supply chain in stock, you know, your, your, your availability, um, your SEO, um, and, and obviously the, the, the actual search engine optimized portion of your content where you, where that role is being served, but also the enhanced content and enhanced content often kind of gets tossed in as like images and a plus, um, you know, pages, but really um, it, it's thinking about the, I need to show up high in search. So I actually get considered, but once I'm in it, did I actually talk to the human being looking at the page, even in three seconds? And, and that's actually not a like a lot of people again, go to, I've got content and I have the keywords in my, in my, in my page, but they don't go, well, I put the keyword, which was the feature, but I didn't talk about the benefit. That was really why they were buying the product. Right. Um, and so it's little things like that that like, obviously really matter. It's obviously making sure you're selling on the right platforms. Right. So, um, you know, on an amazon.com really has been, is the majority of sales as they kind of try to figure out what fresh prime now and pantry are ultimately going to look like. Whereas, you know, on like a Walmart, obviously OGP, which is online grocery pickup, is obviously an emerging opportunity and one that you want to make sure that you're also winning on, not just the dot-com platform. So it's making sure you really understand what platforms each retailer has and where you need to be winning and what the nuances are. Um, and that's kind of the build bucket. The drive is, again, all the promotions, right? Vendor-powered coupons, deals, deals of the day, uh, you, know, AM, you know, AMS search, you know, paid search, um, the display, you know, um, advertising. Um, both on-site and off-site, right? And then the earning is all the things you earn, right? The share, the growth, the sales, the the, the additional reviews, the captaincy you might gain, um, new opportunities that come to you first because you're winning. So I think it's really like a, a way of approaching this, a face of how you approach this as a never-ending model that kind of feels overwhelming because you never get to say you're done, but it means that you never stop working. And that's how those challenger brands think. And so I'm not, I haven't had, the honor of being a part of a digitally native brand, but I've had a, I've been able to be entrepreneurial and it worked. It, it proved itself at Reckitt. It proved itself at WellPet. And 
when the Kellogg's team, while I was there, was pivoting in that direction, we were actually seeing those same results as well, even though we were part of a much bigger company. Cool. Um, let's. Uh, I know people love both high level and you know strategic stuff and tactical. One one tactical thing, um, you know, I think you've done a really good job getting people to review your products on Amazon, which is you know that social proof. There's data that shows once you get something like seven reviews, a product takes off. Um, any you know any tips or tricks for folks listening on on how to kind of get reviews going? Reviews are tricky only because Amazon obviously has such restrictions. I mean, and, and fairly so. I mean, we don't want fake reviews, right? But I mean, that, that's been a real hot topic um, over the last couple, you know, over the last year plus. But I mean, it's always been an issue. But I think as they've started to crack down um, on counterfeit and fake reviews and obviously just making sure that their site maintains the, you know, the number one search engine for products, kind of authenticity and trust, um, I, I think where one little tip with reviews because I, I think to your point you need to have a certain number of reviews and this varies between you know i've seen 21 up to like 40 to 50 or kind of just those gut check like you you don't feel like there are enough people who could be faking you out who could have it, it wasn't just chris perry's family that filled out the reviews um there's unless he has a really large large extended you know set of cousins um ultimately it's it's what you want to do a couple things on reviews. One, um, ultimately, if you're doing all the right things selling, you will obviously generate enough sales that the normal percent of reviews that would come through for most products will ultimately come through for you. Um, there are some different tactics if you're like a three P seller where you actually send the box, send the package through. I know there's some three P's that put in little cards or follow up with their shoppers to encourage reviews. So there are some opportunities there, but 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 just looking at it from a one P and three P standpoint. If you have a great product, people are ultimately going to review it. Um, and but what what I think is important though is to spur that flywheel to spin faster to get more people to convert more so that they experience your product and then review it more. Um, it's using the reviews to inform your content. And I know that sounds really basic, but people don't do that. So um, and I can give you like this is kind of a funny example, but I was in the market for a pair of gym shorts. Um, uh, uh, several months ago. And to be fair, I haven't used them yet. So I, I'm, I'm the wrong person to be the spokesperson for the brand. But um, what was interesting was that the reviews and the Q&A really revealed some, some I, I would say, some confusion points about the product that the product wasn't answering, even though they actually had really decent content for all the other features of the product. So what was what and, and it was kind of funny. I, I would say I, I spent a long time buying shorts, which just sounds funny. But um, had I been at, had I gone to Kohl's, it would have taken me like five minutes to buy a pair, and it would have been all subconscious, quick things I made the decision on, and I would have walked out. But because I was looking at reviews the way I normally do on Amazon for things that should have been low involvement, it became very high involvement for no reason, and it was because the content didn't tell me. And and so what one of the issues was how are there pockets? how deep are the pockets? Will I lose things from the pockets? So some people were telling me that the pockets were big enough to hold two to three, uh, you know, tennis balls without losing them. Some said they lost their keys. Now I'm trying to understand like how many keychains did you have? You know, and I'm just being silly, but like some were saying that they, they were like, why, why are these 80s shorts falling, uh, you know, above, and these weren't 80s shorts, but why are they like 80s shorts and falling above the knee where other people were saying they, they're so baggy, they come way below the knee. Now, obviously, that's probably an issue of height of the people, but the reviews weren't speaking to that. So there was, and there were a number of other issues of whether they were see-through and whether you should go commando or, you know, I mean, it just became kind of comical, honestly, all the issues that weren't being addressed by the content. So if that product who didn't actually, you know, had only, you know, tens of reviews had wanted to get to a hundred or whatever was the, the competitive consideration number, right, for, for their category, they could have driven more conversions, which would have gotten more sales, which would have gotten more reviews inherently without having to try to drive more reviews had they just talked to me about the features that everyone was asking about. And so I think that that's that's as tactical, I, I would say. It's like it's going to be very unique to every product, but like pill size for vitamins and medicine, like, like show me how big it is. Don't like don't don't. And, 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 no, and I know this sounds silly, but like here's real tactical. Don't put a pill next to a penny because that's gross. I'm not going to eat it. Like it is size. It is size comparative, but like, come on. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to eat that. I don't want to swallow that. Where is that penny been? You know? So 
like so, so like Mucinex did an, you know which is part of Reckit, and I was auditing some of these the other day. Did an awesome job of having like a hand, a beautiful clean hand holding the pill to give you a very good sense of how big that was. Um, that like that was the best in class of how tactic. Like, but, but that was a question that was coming through that they probably didn't have content for. You know, because normally at, at, at shelf, you would have been able to see the pill in actual size on the packaging. And that wasn't coming through digitally. So um, I could go nerdy into this all day long because I love, I love the content side and review side of things, which again, seems cliche now because everyone knows to do it, but they don't do it right. And so um, I think that's a huge opportunity to drive conversion, which then ultimately gets you to review, mine your reviews to drive more sales to get more reviews, if that makes sense. Yeah, create your own flywheel. And exactly. by the way, I feel like the hand is a, a good uh, tool for scale, but I feel like uh, comparing it to a Skittles would actually be best. Well, well actually, that, that's actually funny you said it, because I, I actually, that's very astute point. Because I was saying, what if you had a hand holding like an M&M or to your point of Skittles, I went M&Ms, I'm yep. a chocolate guy. And then and then you had the pill we next to it. We have a lot of so listeners looked- uh, named Jeff from Seattle, so that's why I chose. <laughs> no, 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 that's good. No, no, it, Exactly, because that would make it feel more appetizing, right? Even though it might be medicine or, or a vitamin, but it just it, it takes away the grossness of a common item found on the seat, streets of New York, um, you know. And so I, I think that's uh, no, no, not to New York, but um, just just urban streets. You, um, yeah, no, you brought up an interesting point, though. So there's a lot of things that we traditionally like would have made a purchase decision uh, via our subconscious. Um, like often largely based just on, on brand recognition that we now like, because there's so much more data available, we turn into this like a much more considered purchase. And there's actually a professor at at, uh, Stanford that writes about this. He calls it absolute value. And essentially his premise is uh, that when uh, there's not very much information where it's hard to judge the quality of product that we use a brand name as a surrogate for quality, but when objective, information is available about a product as it often is online. Now um, the brand name actually is much less important uh, because uh, shoppers have easy direct access to all the real attributes of the product. So when, you know, ratings and reviews being a a marquee example, when you can read a bunch of ratings and reviews that say a product's good or bad, the brand reputation isn't as important. And the reason I bring that up is because that sort of ties perfectly to one of the big evolutions in the Amazon ecosystem. Uh, you know, we're, we're increasingly seeing Amazon launching their own brands and uh, sort of going head to head with the, the traditional incumbent brands. Um, is that a new fear that like you, you get from, from uh, uh, clients and executives that you're working with is like what, what sort of strategy should folks have against Amazon private label? That's a great question. Um, I, I think so. Private label has always been around, obviously. Um, you know, in retail, and I, I as a you know practitioner in the space, do support private label because I do think it's important as a retailer strategy not to put all your eggs in one basket or you know a few baskets. You know, by category, it helps with profitability. I mean, it gives you a unique offering. I mean, to be honest, like my wife and I, from a brick and mortar standpoint always shop target when you know before we had kids and became more and more you know e-commercialized i guess um but and i and honestly i loved i i've always loved targets up and up brand and all their private label brands because they're actually really high quality even and they just again the the brand equity part good bad or indifferent isn't always tied to it we don't buy only you know private label but but they are valuable um brands and and do do outfit our home um, but I, I do think that the, the challenge is, and I, and I think this is the part where obviously politically, you know, from, from a government standpoint, obviously a lot of issues have been raised recently, um, not just about, you know, Amazon or any one retailer, but just generally these, these, you know, mega, uh, you know, mega organizations that have these ecosystems, uh, you know, do they need to be broken up? Are they exerting too much power? I mean, I mean that, that's subjected to a lot of different people, but I think the the, the scary part for a brand, if, if, if I were a brand today, as I've been recently, um, the challenge with an Amazon or a retailer as such with private label is that it's not that private label, like it used to, sat next to your product on shelf. It's that it sits in front of your product on shelf. And so I think that's the scary part 
is that it's the way the digital shelf works. Um, there are only so many top search results. There are only so there's only so much above the fold one can see. And, and as a lot of data has shown, people don't really scroll. Um, and so winning the top box, you know, top, top search results, um, being above fold really does matter both from a paid and organic standpoint. And so when a retailer, um, whoever that is, is launching and expanding their private label and private brand with all the cards in hand and is putting essentially the proverbial product in front of yours. I mean, that would be like going to a, a mass retailer and again, sitting at the back of shelf with all the private label in front. So you can't really see them. And I think that's, that's where it gets scary because now the choice is gone. But, but again, we're so used to the digital shelf morphing in real time that it's not that my brand doesn't matter anymore that people won't seek it out. But knowing that so many searches start unbranded as well, that, that means that so many searches will defect to what, again, like a Google and Amazon is telling me is the most relevant search result in that case. And I'm gonna, I may likely choose that. And again, think about it. You can't be voted president if you're not on the ballot and or you don't get enough write-ins, right? So it's hard to be a write-in candidate. Um, so as long as you're on the ballot, you, you have a chance. You, and so I, I think that's the challenge is when the private label, private brands kind of automatically get on the ballot and might be bumped up a little bit, they have disproportionate gain to win versus the brands who don't have all those merchandising capabilities may not be able to, you know, again, we don't have all the cards. We know what the cards are, but we don't hold them in our hand. And so it's, it, it is playing, you know, poker without, you know, without all, you know, without a full hand of cards. And I think that's, that's what scares me. I've seen a lot of, you know, our data, the data you know, from edge data I've seen has shown that, you know, obviously that, that while the proliferation of brands from Amazon specifically is quite large in number, it's not most of the dollars have been coming through, kind of Amazon basics and, and, um, in some of their core, uh, you know, their original brands, it's not all of their proliferated brands, but the thing is they're testing and learning in real time by category and just announcing that they have a product in a category usually causes some sort of market impact, which may be what their objective is. So, um, I, I think that's the scary part is just not having, not having a lot of control, if you will. But that puts the onus back on the brands. I mean, we have to divide, we have to create demand and, and maintain demand for our brands. That that makes total sense. I feel like the poker metaphor is is a little bit of a sore subject because there's this this rumor that Scott runs a big e-commerce poker game, and I, I keep trying to get an invite, and he keeps pretending like he doesn't have a game. There's, well, I haven't been invited either. So there's no yeah. game. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Uh, so private label is a hot topic. Another one that we're seeing kind of topical in the news is the delivery wars. So, so you have Amazon just recently kind of ratcheted up uh, Prime to one day. Walmart has got people putting stuff in your refrigerator, wearing body cams. Where, where do you think the delivery wars go as a, as a CPG guy? I, I, so that, that's a great question. Um, I, so some of this is a little, you know, I, I would say I'm, I'm looking at my crystal ball and, and, trying to forecast where the future will go without obviously having a DeLorean and being able to go there myself. Um, but I, what, what's funny is I, I'm, I'm excited to see for a number of reasons, I'm excited to see a lot of the grocery and mass retailers expanding their fulfillment options, either through partnership or their own capabilities, again, expanding click and collect, um, you know, with, you know, Walmart and target and Kroger um, as, as an example. Or you know, again, all these different retailers, regional and national, partnering with Instacart or shipped, obviously um, via the Target acquisition. Um, so I'm I'm excited that everyone's expanding. And to be honest, what I what I've seen in CPG, both firsthand and through our clients and partners, is that the click and collect expansion is what's triggering the executive leadership at a lot of these companies to pivot their thinking. And, I, and we need that, right? So we need a bridge of behavior, both for CPG brand to act on the change, but also for consumers to kind of take one step away, right? So I may not, there may have been a lot of barriers for why as a shopper, I didn't buy online consistently, um, especially groceries, but, but the pickup option is like one baby step of comfort, right? Well, I do, I do kind of hate the hassle of going in the store. Wouldn't it be cool if on my way home, I could pick it up, right? So that's awesome you know, that, that we have this bridge. But what I, what's interesting is kind of whether they mean to or not, 
everyone's upping the game and the focus on ultimately figuring out how to make delivery work at scale and, and we'll have to figure out the sustainability of it. And that's why all these cool models are popping up that I think ultimately get us towards a future state of iterating. So well, I'm, I'm excited about the competition because it's making everyone toss their gauntlet in and it's moving the needle faster towards something that ultimately is long-term what's going to happen. I mean, let's be honest, there will be a, a desire for retail um, engagement, right? To go and experience something. There will be physical outlets, whether they're pickup or actual stores. I, the store is not dead. Um, there will be showrooms. There will be stores with fulfillment centers in the back. There will be lots of different ways that that new or harmonized retail, as it's being called, will will come to life. But at the end of the day, and I'm I'm, I'm being silly, but is when you saved me the shopping time. Was the commute time really the part I wanted to, to cherish? No, it, it wasn't. I actually really, well, the bridge is like, oh, I've, you saved me the shopping time. Why don't you just bring it to my house? And, and, and ultimately, as all of these players figure out how to bring this into memberships, cut the cost to be competitive and obviously get a competitive edge versus their players, all the while trying to figure out how to make this sustainable, the barriers are going to keep lowering and, and obviously, ultimately, I think delivery is where the the win is going to happen. So it is exciting to see this war. But the the neat thing within fridge, and I'll and I'll and I'll pause after this just to get your thoughts. Um, Walmart patented, I think, two years ago, this concept of an in-home consignment-based pantry, which I actually think this in-fridge delivery gets us very very close to, which is kind of interesting. So I could have like a Peapod deliver it to my door or to my counter, I while I'm home or Instacart or shipped, I could have Walmart in these test markets, but ultimately rolled out, come when I'm not home and put it away for me. I could also then have a Walmart or whoever, the next player who throws a gauntlet, manage my inventory for me. So there's the last mile solved in the infrastructures. I just have someone driving to check on all the homes. I'm not saying there aren't complications and patients here, but why wouldn't I just have the person a service that comes and checks and manages, obviously with AI-driven technology based on what I'm consuming and what I'm not, and managing my my, my fridge and my pantry for me and, and replenishing it in real time, um, or relatively in real time, on a weekly or every other daily basis, right? And, and once that trust has been built up, this could become, this is how, I don't have to worry about delivering anymore. I'm just I'm just sending a person at scale around neighborhoods to manage people's products, you know, and, and so I don't know how quickly that's going to come about, but Walmart has the, the patent. They have, they're obviously already testing this. They have the scale. Um, and obviously if they are doing this, you know, and are leading in the space, the Amazons, the targets of the world are looking at this as well. So this is what's exciting to me is like, there's so many new kinds of models that this delivery war is pushing us towards because to solve the cost of delivery what if I just have the product already sitting there and it's not really mine until I buy it? You know, so. Yeah. So it's just kind of an interesting thought. I, I think about these things just as a nerd and I'm sure you guys think five iterations out from that. So um, would love to pick your brain on another, you know, on another call off, off, um, off the record. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's interesting. And you got bonus points for working uh, a back to the future reference into your answer. I've got the DeLorean sticker on my laptop. Yeah, I love it. It's a little sad for me because I do uh, lots of decks and I always put a picture of De- a DeLorean in there when, I, uh, when I'm talking about the future. And then the millennial designers in my company always replace the DeLorean with like a hot tub. <laughs> it's apparently, uh, yeah. Uh, well, well, exactly. well, act, what's, what's sad is when, when you say hot tub, and I, I didn't think I was old until now, I, my, my mind went to when the moment's right, Cialis, but that was where you had the two tubs. But that, yeah. either way. Um, yeah. uh, well, I'm not going to delve into why that's where your mind went, but, um, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I feel like this is a good point to move on. Uh, <laughs> the, I agree. Uh, you, you talked a little bit about sort of your view for, you know, the, the retail formats that survive. Um, and it is interesting, uh, like in particular, I feel like edge essential has, a um, the tool sets have, have feel like they have a, a significant um, focus on marketplaces and you look globally and it's like, it seems like the marketplaces are winning everywhere. It's, you know, obviously Amazon's 50% of e-commerce in the U S and, and, you know, more than 50% of that is a marketplace. Alibaba is a hundred percent marketplace. Mercado Libra is the biggest 
uh, e-commerce uh, venture in Latin America, also a marketplace. Uh, Walmart and Target have both sort of shifted to a marketplace model. Is um, I'm sort of curious, is some flavor of a marketplace the the eventual endpoint for all these things? Is that is that basically what we're left with? Is everyone's a marketplace? Um, or or do you think some of the, the other business models can survive? No, that, that's a great question. And, and again, I think there's a lot there's a lot to come. So I mean, I, again, knowing exactly where everything will end up is is, is hard to, to peg. But I think the fact that marketplaces are as large as they are, both in North America, but also in, in you know, especially from a scale perspective, in many other markets that may be developing, but obviously are like Trump Trump our our North America market multiple times over from an e-commerce standpoint and from a growth standpoint. I do think marketplaces ultimately kind of play to this, and, and I use this word a little bit loosely because we know it's not fully democratized, but it's kind of, you know, when we think of like information, it was kind of democratized to a point via a Google in the sense that the most relevant wins, right? The the most relevant and most trafficked and most um, value added content would win. And I know that's, you know, that has an asterisk because obviously companies own these platforms. So there are other agendas, you know, good, bad, or different that are in- included. But that marketplace model does really ultimately allow product, you know, the consumer to vote up what the best product is and helps us aggregate all those choices into what we're really searching for. Um, so I do think marketplace is going to have a major dominant role in the future of, of retail. I don't necessarily believe that that all retailers as they are today are going to disappear, that direct-to-consumer can't live on their own. But but again, kind of in the same way that we look at, you know, Harry's, um, even prior to being bought by Edgewell, um, personal care, you know, obviously a lot of its sales in recent time has been driven by its in-store presence at Target, right? And so, you know, again, that goes to the whole kind of discussion around what does D2C really mean when a lot of these are getting sales from their own stores or from partnerships. But I think at the end of the day, it's it's a direct-to-consumer brand may have a role for its direct-to-consumer site, right? It might be its most loyal shoppers who are part of a fan group who get to test the products, who get to um, you know be part of the market research process. But they also sell to a digital omni-channel physical retailer for a different, you know, for a different reason, right? That there's a reason at the end of the day, you need a quote unquote channel customer strategy. I hate using the word channel, but you know, a customer strategy for where you're going to sell and why and 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 how that's going to be different or better from you know from the other places that you that you offer your proposition. And so, but I, I you, you bring up an interesting point, and this is something I, I just I jotted down. It is interesting. It, it kind of like reminds me of like the dash button, like. You bought a dash button because it seemed convenient that when you ran out of tide, you might want some more detergent at that point. But then at some point, would you really have 30 dash buttons around your house? Maybe not. Like like all the choices were great, but would you really, if you really wanted that convenient convenience, wouldn't you just want one button? Oh, wait, I have one. It's my phone. Um, and so, but, or it's my voice, right? I could just say it out loud and it would do it for me, right? And so, so it's funny because we kind of ebb and flow between like proliferation and fragmentation and then consolidation, right? So like how many subscriptions to D2C sites could I really have before I need an app that's like the Instacart of subscriptions, right? I mean, that's a business opportunity right there. I'm not saying I could win with everyone, but what if I had an app that could manage all my subscriptions so that so that I don't have to only subscribe on one platform, I can subscribe through an aggregator that manages all of my subscriptions, right? So I think there's going to be, there's going to be a, an ebb and flow, but, but marketplaces ultimately allow that aggregation opportunity where, again, the democratized choice is lifted to the consumer based on what they really want um, or what they think they want. So, but there's going to still be need for discovery. You know, again, I think there's still going to be retailers that can manage like the, a discovery experience, whether it's global, national, local, or, you know, pop-up. And I think those are going to still, because again, experiences are becoming more important than products nowadays um, with, with the millennial and future generations. And so what you did is more important than what you have. So it kind of became, it's switched from the have, haves and have nots to the have dones and haven't dones, 
which yeah, or, um, or at least have a photo of having done whether they did. Well, that. exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I, but I do think edge forecasts for the foreseeable future that marketplaces will be the primary driver of e-commerce globally, and I think that they just ultimately provide a route to market for the quote-unquote proverbial D to C brand. Sure. You know. That makes sense. And that is it, like, it's funny because you like the, the category that's already like a lot more mature for subscriptions is digital content, right? Like it's, it's right, right. Your, your entertainment and you, you, we've already seen the subscription aggregation services that Apple and Amazon want have launched, like already trying to solve that problem of subscription uh, fragmentation. So, so I, I certainly think you, we could see that with a, a lot more goods in the future. Um, but Chris, that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We have wasted a perfectly good hour of our <laughs> listeners time. Um, but if folks uh, had a burning question or, or have some feedback about any of the topics we covered tonight, uh, they're welcome to hit us up on, on Twitter or leave us a note on our Facebook page and we'll be happy to get back to you. Chris, we really appreciate you taking time to share your your wisdom with us. Uh, one last question. If folks want to find more about your, your writings and thoughts uh, online, where can they go? Um, I, I'm most active on LinkedIn, and I have all my contact information publicly available. So spam me or write me. I would love to hear from you. And again, uh, Scott and Jason, I'm, I'm just so honored to be a part of um, your efforts here. I've been a longtime fan and, and just so tickled to be on it. So. We are happy to have you and we'll make sure we get the LinkedIn uh, URL in the show notes so you don't have to write it down while while driving or uh, <laughs> uh, exercising. Um, but until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing. Subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 